The right idea at the right time. The miracles of logistics every day. I just challenged all of their rules. Technology is revolutionizing this industry. Changed our lives. Close your eyes for a second. New York, Hong Kong, Paris. We're more connected. You just never know where the next innovation will come from. Rules are beginning to change. This is Longitudes Radio, a podcast with today's leading experts about the future of technology, global trade, sustainability, and logistics. From Atlanta, I'm Brian Hughes. And I'm James Rowe. Hey there, listeners. We're talking about reverse logistics today. It's kind of uh, like taking the red pill or the blue pill. And what you're looking at in the world of retail is when you buy... Uh, something, or you're given a gift over the holidays, that kind of thing, and you say, hmm, I just don't really like this, or it doesn't fit. I don't say that. I say, I love it. Yes, sure, sure. But then you immediately go uh, exchange it, right? Perhaps. So, yeah. so this rabbit hole that we're talking about, this blue or red pill, we have to decide if we're going to take this product back to the store, and at that point, what the store does with it is the decision. Does it eventually end up in a landfill? Uh, does it get recycled or does it turn out to be a resale to somebody who really wants it and needs it? Yeah, and this is a really major headache that has significant business repercussions, right? Because if you're getting a bunch of returns and you don't know what to do with them, you're looking at massive levels of inventory. You could have product that's out of season, that mm -hmm. doesn't sell, and what you have is a huge loss on your hands. So for retailers, merchandisers, getting the reverse logistics question right is huge to their business, especially in the age of e-commerce. Yeah, you don't get it right, you're going to possibly not be in business. Right, and luckily we have one of the leaders in the reverse logistics space here with us today. It's Toby Moore. He's right. the CEO of Optoro. Optoro envisions a different future, one in which products have longer life cycles and brands leverage new sources of revenue and consumers get stuff what they want. It basically lasts longer. Uh, it's good for the environment. It's good for business. And what you don't have is landfills brimming with that stuff that you thought you wanted. Or less of it. Yeah. So we, I think we have some really uh, significant questions we're going to get to. Why does reverse logistics matter? Yeah. What does this mean in terms of customer experience? And how can businesses capitalize on answering these questions. Right. And, and how Toby will help people choose the blue pill over the red pill. Really looking forward to this one. Uh, we hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Hey, uh, Toby, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, Toby. So I want to start with something. It's a little personal. Uh, it might be me trying to exercise my demons, but I think this will give us a good entryway to this conversation. Uh, let's say hypothetically, I'm an Atlanta Falcons fan. Uh, it's around the Super Bowl earlier this year. I'm watching the game. Uh, we're winning by 25 points and no team in the history of the NFL has blown that lead. Felt good. I, I was exuberant. Yeah. Okay. So it's, you know, I'm already popping the champagne, but let's say I go online and I order an Atlanta Falcons Super Bowl championship t-shirt. Yes, I, to be clear, I did not do this, but let's say I, <laughs> I knew things could go wrong, but let's just say I did, okay? Uh, obviously, the uh, meltdown comes. We blow the largest lead in Super Bowl history. Ah, I'm still having trouble talking about this. I won't cry. But uh, anyway, a couple days later, 
that shirt gets to my doorstep, I have no need for it, right? Uh, so can you talk about what happens? Because in my head, it's like, well, I don't want this shirt anymore, so I'm going to send it back, no questions asked, give me my money back. And I know, or I assume, it's not that simple, right? It's not that simple. It turns out that a lot of people like to return goods, and especially with the growth of e-commerce, uh, they're returning goods at, at double and triple the rate that they do to storefronts. So it is a, a major problem that retailers are facing. And uh, as a consumer, it's necessary to create a good consumer experience uh, because people buy things that don't fit. They buy things that um, it, it was the wrong model or they buy things that, that sometimes they just uh, have buyer's remorse on and want to return it. And in order to create a loyal customer and build a brand where that customer wants to come back, as a retailer, you need to offer uh, a returns experience that that is, is easy uh, for the customer. There's been some studies done that show that a good returns experience for consumers means that they're 71% more likely to come back to that brand and buy again. So it's it's really important to make sure there's a good a good returns experience because that actually means that you'll have more sales. Right, and on the front end. And from a dollars and cents perspective, this is kind of pesky, right? Because if you're getting an unprecedented amount of returns as a lot of retailers are in the age of e-commerce, what you're seeing is inventory grow. You might have product that's more difficult to sell. So how do retailers look at returns as creating value while minimizing their own exposure? Yeah, so on the one end, returns creates value by making a better customer experience, getting people to come to their site and, and buy items, especially when it's online or on mobile commerce where uh, having the, the easiest experience of feeling that you can return an item makes it so you're much more likely to just buy something with the, the click of a button. But what that also means is there are more returns. So while it helps sales and uh, it results in, in a higher return rate online, uh, retailers then need to find a way to better process these goods on the back end so that they don't lose money. So being really good on creating a customer experience is good for, for sales um, on the return side, and then being really good on processing the returns on the back end uh, is really important for managing the costs. So re some retailers see as high as 20 and 30% of their goods that are sold online get returned. And people who aren't as good at dealing with reverse logistics will get anywhere from 10 to 30% recovery on the cost of goods sold on those items, whereas people who are best in class, uh, in certain cases, can get 60 and 70% recovery for those goods. So it's a, it's a major difference when you're, you're talking about those types of numbers. So what I'm hearing, Toby, is you're saying this is no longer just a cost of doing business, right? This is something that I'm guessing certain people almost might look at as an annoyance. They have to do it whether they like it or not. What you're saying is there's real business value here and you should focus on it because it's more than just checking a box. Absolutely. And, and you talk about some of these major retailers out there, they have billions of dollars of returns a year. Yeah, you know, If you look at a, a retailer doing $20 billion in sales, they're likely going to be having $2 billion in returns a year. So big numbers that, that matter a lot. And if you can go from getting 20% recovery on your returns to 60% recovery, uh, that could be 
tens of millions of dollars to the bottom line. And where where does Autoro come into play? It's probably important for us to uh, remind our listeners of your business that you're running every day and doing quite, right. a, quite a good job of. What is it that you guys do that makes this process easier for people up and down the supply chain? So we provide retailers with a, a technology platform uh, that they use to receive, process, manage, disposition, and resell their customer return to excess inventory. So it's the technology and systems that they're using to receive items right when they come back at the, the first touch point. And then once that item is back in the system, it's immediately figuring out the best path to find the next best home for, for that specific return. So if it's uh, a brand new item, it might figure out how to route it right back to stock online for that retailer. If it's a used item that's in really good condition, it might automatically generate content and push it online to online secondary markets to resell it. And if it's something that might be heavily damaged, it might get sold uh, to recyclers uh, right away for for parts harvesting so that it could be reused again in in a new item. So how does your uh, software make that calculation? If, If I'm hearing you right, it sounds like there's a bunch of data going into this decision and it looks at all the different variables and comes up with the most ideal solution? Yeah, so it's all data-driven. When the item is first received uh, into our technology, the the retailer or whoever's working at a distribution center, if it's going back to a distribution center, is receiving the item, they scan in the item UPC representing what the item is, and then they enter some condition information on the item that they're prompted by our, our software to input. And then with that information, our software is immediately scanning all of the different secondary markets where that item can go, either either with that retailer online, uh, back to vendors, or with recyclers. And then it's choosing, it's also looking at how much it costs to send it to all those different markets and dispositions, and then it chooses the disposition that has the highest net recovery right away. And then there's continuous machine learning going on also uh, to capture if one channel ends up being more cost-effective than another channel, then the next time it'll move it to that channel. And if market conditions change at all in any of the channels, it also will route, it'll take that into account when it's routing the disposition for it. So, Toby, what happened, you know, before this, these algorithms and all of the data was available? What, what did stores do at that point with the material? So there's a couple of different things. A lot of major retailers were throwing away up to 40% of the returns that would come back. There's actually been articles on these guys called dumpster divers who will go behind retailers and dive into their uh, dumpsters and pull out items that are perfectly good. And these dumpster divers were making uh, over $200,000 a year doing this. Um, wow, yeah. one, one thing that they did, because it was the, the most economical thing for them to do in many cases, was just to throw it away so that they didn't have to spend money shipping and touching all of these items that were used. Uh, the other thing a lot of them would do, they would receive them, try to send as much back to, to the vendors for credit uh, as possible, and then they would liquidate everything else for pennies on the dollar. 
So they would just put it all into these giant boxes uh, called Gaylords that, that basically fit on pallets, and they would just sell them for 10 cents on the dollar to whoever the, the highest bidding liquidator was. And then that liquidator, in many cases, would end up getting the goods, sort them, and then it'd flip them to another regional wholesaler who then would sort them again and sell them to all the pawn shops, dollar stores, uh, flea markets, and, and thrift stores of, of America. And then the goods would be merchandised and sold to end consumers. So you ended up seeing these goods getting touched by uh, four and five different middlemen uh, being shipped around four and five different times uh, redundantly. And at the end of the day, get, you know, all this money was lost because of these redundant touches and shipments, and the retailers would get pennies on the dollar. And a lot of the goods ended up being thrown away because it wasn't economical to even push it through that system. And then the other side of it that comes out of this is 4 billion pounds of waste a year uh, in the U.S. alone from reverse logistics. Uh, so, Toby, you're telling me I don't have a future anymore in dumpster diving? <laughs> it sounds like a micro. Not for long. Not for long. Not if we can help it. That's how we started. That's I was it. a dumpster diver. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of how you started, Toby, I think there's a really interesting story there. You started up Toro from your college dorm room, right? Right. Can you uh, set the scene where you were, what your thought process was? Because I think at first blush, this isn't necessarily an industry that a lot of people would gravitate towards at first. Yeah, so I was uh, back at Brown in, in, in college, and uh, you know, it's probably back in 2002, 2003, and in the, uh, the summers of my spare time at home, uh, I was helping my dad sell goods online. So he... Uh, he was a major addict of uh, eBay in the early days, or the very early days, even before they had pictures, and he would just buy, you know, random uh, knickknacks here Beanie and there. Beanie Babies. I'm guessing there was Beanie Babies. Toy soldiers and toy cars and different things for that were that were from, like, the 1920s and 30s from when his dad was a kid. And before you knew it, my dad had too many of these, and my mom wanted to get rid of them all and, and was, you know, losing her, her mind because it was so messy. And so my dad started trying to sell it, and he had a really difficult time posting these goods online, figuring out the photography, figuring out the pricing. And then once he finally got it online, uh, he didn't have these huge seller ratings that people trusted. So it took him a lot of time, and then he couldn't even get the money that it was worth that he had purchased it for. So I started helping him, and I thought, wow, you know, there's a lot of other people out here, like my father, who are, you know, this baby boom population that probably have lots of lots of goods that they've that are, you know, just sitting in closets and wasting away in basements that that uh, aren't valuable enough for the local antique store, but they have a lot of value online if you can get it there. And there was no good way for them to do it easily. So I thought there needs to be a service that can help these people sell their goods online. So. Came up with the idea from that, uh, and the idea was to create uh, eBay drop-off stores, is what it was called back then, because eBay was pretty much the only secondary market. We were going to create storefronts where people could drop off their goods to be sold online, and we actually did it. We started in my college dorm room. I had a, another friend who, who joined me to start the company who was uh, I, I had grown up with, who was at a, another college in Philadelphia, and... Uh, we started at our college dorm room, wrote a business plan, started selling, and then we moved home into my parents' garage uh, where we did it in a little attic space above the garage. And uh, then we took out 37 credit cards and 
and opened up a little storefront um, and brought on a third friend from from high school as well uh, who joined us and um, in the storefront called eSpot, uh, we actually started building the technology for marketing and logistics and pricing and routing these goods uh, in order to initially do it for consumers. So it started off building the, the systems that connected the goods of, of just individuals to online uh, you know, and automated all of it. And then what happened, once we had this little storefront, we got a lot of publicity, a lot of, uh, you know, it's an easy story, a couple 22-year-olds doing something uh, new related to the Internet. So, so it's all paper as well. But um, we had a lot of uh, individuals coming to us, and then suddenly storefronts started reading about us. And we had these small uh, retailers in Georgetown these boutiques and jewelers and uh, you know, antique stores coming to us with their items. And the boutiques and jewelers actually had uh, open box goods that were these returns uh, as well as excess inventory that they brought us. And we realized it was a lot easier to have a customer that had uh, a thousand goods at once versus having a thousand customers eat, each with one item. And so we started studying the market uh, a, a lot more and realized that this just, that this wasn't a problem that these small boutiques had, but it was a much, much bigger problem that the entire retail industry had, which was, you know, nearly 10% of all goods sold getting returned. And, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, these, these folks getting pennies on the dollar for them because of the horrible solutions that were in place. So, so after noticing that, we yeah. saw that our technology could be applied in a much bigger way that we had built and could help add a lot of value to these retailers and also reduce a lot of waste uh, by keeping all these goods out of landfills. And so we, we pivoted to Optoro. Yeah, well, that sounds like uh, quite a pivot. And, you know, just 37 credit cards. I think if you're hustling, you know, you would got in at least 40, right? Oh, I'm going to take out three right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It actually puts you in the realm of Kevin Smith from Clerks, right? So he financed his first film with, I think, 10 credit cards. So you're in an, an elite circle there. <laughs> I guess there's something about uh, setting up shop in uh, your parents' garage. There seems to be uh, some success. A couple of people have done that, yeah. Free space, wherever you can find it. (laughs) Yeah, hey, did you ever imagine when you were going through the hustle of all that that you would be where you are right now? I mean, we definitely did not envision the company to be anything that it is today. Uh, We always had big dreams, and we love tackling big problems, so... You know, we always wanted to do something big and, you know, that could also make an impact. So, so I think that, you know, we've always been highly motivated to keep pushing. So never, you know, I think both my, my co-founder and myself are, are never satisfied and always, you know, pushing to, to you know, keep doing better and keep offering a better solution, a bigger from, impact. From a, a business perspective, how do you think that you and your company made the leap from those beginning stages like any startup where you're just trying to stay afloat? How did you go from that to becoming this solutions provider to so many people in so many different industries? Yeah, well, one thing, the lesson was things don't happen overnight. So you've really got to dig deep and be gritty and take out credit cards and live at home if you have to and just kind of stick with it. Uh, so that was one thing. You know, and I, I was told by other uh, entrepreneurs that I interviewed in my early days to get some advice from, and they were just saying, 
that they were successful because they thought they were they're stubborn enough to stick with a, with an idea that they thought was going to work out. So that was one of the lessons we learned. You got to be gritty and just stick it out. There are lots of uh, ups and downs being an entrepreneur. And then the other lesson was surround yourself by great people. You know, hiring. Uh, Really great, smart, motivated people has been you know everything about making our business, and yet we've we've always focused a lot on that. Uh, and then surround yourself by great uh, mentors, uh, advisors, and investors who have been there and done there before has been helpful. One of our investors likes to call it dumb tax, where they've done things and made lots of mistakes in the past, and they can they can share those learnings with us. And then I guess last is is really rolling up your sleeves and, and getting dirty. So really digging into the solutions, getting down uh, onto the ground floor, walking around warehouses with retailers, you know, seeing the systems they're using, you know, really getting in there uh, it makes a big difference. So, yeah, you can't solve solutions from an ivory tower. You really got to get on the ground floor and get in there to see what's happening. Yeah, so speaking of uh, getting dirty, you know, there's a huge part of the returns business that hits us in the uh, sustainability aspect. So, you know, you guys you guys have been looked at as a leader in the circular economy. And I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. You know, we're a lot of this product uh, has the potential of going to landfills. You know, what part of your company is is um, or what are the things that your company is doing to to keep things from going into landfills and um, and, and adding more to the problem? Uh, yeah, a major problem is a lot of these goods end up in landfills. It, it creates four billion pounds of waste a year and actually twelve million metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions. What we've been doing is creating more efficient solutions that connect the product to their best home from the initial source. So it cuts out all those redundant middlemen and touches that are, are, are wasting a lot of uh, energy and shipments, but more so, which are costing so much that it doesn't make economical sense for a retailer to recycle a good uh, or to even resell it, so they end up throwing it away. So by creating a much more efficient solution without all the middlemen that routes the goods immediately when they come back, we're able to keep these goods out of the landfills and economically get them either to a, a uh, recycler or to another person who's willing to purchase that item. So you talked some about uh, the growth and how the company's taken on new challenges and has been stubborn to stick to its vision. As part of that growth, I'm curious, how how has UPS enhanced the services you're able to offer and deliver even more value to customers wherever they are? Yeah, so you know, UPS has, has been a great great partner, Big Brown. Uh, you know, I went to Brown, as I mentioned earlier, so it was a, a good alliance there. Um, nice. <laughs> but uh, UPS is uh, the, you know, one of the leading, if not the leading, logistics provider in in the the U.S. One of the leading logistics providers in the in the world. So their uh, logistics network, their scale, and their expertise in logistics, mixed with our our reverse logistics technology, I think makes it so we can put together a solution that is. Uh, going to be the most competitive solution out there. It really allows us to move our technology farther upstream uh, since UPS is often the, the, you know, the, the first person touching and moving around and processing lots of goods. We can help them start to do that better and to get the goods to the, the, the right spot uh, even faster and farther upstream, which will add more value to retailers and it will 
reduce waste and, and, and create a positive impact on the environment. So, you know, we have, uh, we, we've always looked at it as having two peak seasons. So, you know, during the holidays, we have the initial surge in December, but we also have returns that comes into play in January. And so, you know, that's been, that's been growing every year. And uh, obviously we see it in our, our operations. What kind of, what kind of growth are you seeing in that surge after the holidays um, year over year from, you know, 2015, 2016, and then what you anticipate this coming year? Well, a lot of the growth has been coming with e-commerce. Uh, you know, as, as everyone's seen each year, the amount of uh, sales on, you know, online and now mobile commerce has been growing tremendously. And those are also segments where you see returns uh, growing a lot. So we expect to see that, that same trend this year uh, as we've seen in the past years, and it will grow with the growth of e-commerce and mobile commerce. And now I guess the new one that we're not talking about but we will be soon is uh, voice commerce. So the, uh, what's, yeah, what's what's yeah, that? That's... People will literally, literally uh, we always talk about seeing like buying items that you can't touch and feel, and often that causes more returns because someone wasn't able to touch and feel it. Now it's going to be buying things sight unseen as well, where you you literally don't even look at what the item is because you're you're walking by your your Google Home and you you, you make an order on the way out the door. Tell me, I think one of the things that is perhaps the most telling about where Optoro is today and why you've been successful is that you were able to identify not just a problem, but a solution before anyone else really was, and you're able to uh, address it at scale. I'm, I'm curious, is there something in the next couple of years that you envision as your next big challenge, whether it's in this space, whether it's something entirely new? There's a couple things. One is is constantly looking at creating uh, a better customer experience also. So we've been very focused on the back end of how to optimally route all the goods as efficiently as possible once they get back. But we can start using some of our technology on the front end to make it uh, even faster for uh, customers to 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 return items, to get refunds, um, and then also to connect goods from the customers to, in certain cases, the recyclers or to uh, charities as fast as possible. So that's one area is getting more on the, the front end. And then the other area that I think is interesting in the future is offering more solutions for e-commerce, for the, the trade-in world. So when, I, when people come to a store that beyond just, returning an item, if they have a return, they can actually trade in items. So if you want to go to a store and you're going to buy a new shirt or, uh, you know, a new, I mean, the obvious one is a new phone where everyone's doing it today. You take your old phone and you trade it in and you get a credit. So taking that model uh, to the rest of retail so that as people are buying new items or putting their old items back into the economy as well. And I think our technology can really be used to make that much more efficient and and cost-effective. Toby, I'm just speculating here, but, you know, there's a lot of people out there who love uh, maybe going to flea markets on the weekend or just perusing eBay for, quite frankly, weird stuff they couldn't find anywhere else. Uh, I would imagine Optoro could be a pretty cool place for uh, someone like that to work, right? Absolutely. There's definitely uh, some, we're finding some people posting on YouTube uh, their experience buying on, on bulk.com. And, and it's, uh, you know, people, every time they'll buy, they'll post on what they're getting out of there and how they're going to you know, get value out of these goods. So it's, it's interesting to, 
to see that uh, the the micro entrepreneurs and you know add their unique value. Are they kind of like the modern dumpster divers now? Yeah, it is kind of that way, but yeah. it's made you know keeping them out of dumpsters and getting them to the people that that can add the most value. Yeah, and the idea is to to sort the goods as best as possible, so people who've got unique skill sets uh, can utilize those unique skill sets on those specific items. There, there's always this one person on the beach with the metal detector, right? Uh, you would not discourage them from continuing to uh, search for uh, treasure out there. No, we, we need that. we <laughs> keep, need all those, keep those folks it. we can to keep those goods uh, uh, out of uh, landfills and out of the, the beaches. Right. And uh, in places where people actually want them and want to use them. Well, uh, Toby, I'm uh, sure they're glad to hear it. We've been uh, glad to have you here for this uh, conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.